Good morning, everyone. I'm going to do the scripture reading for today, but I think we need a better, he is risen indeed. So I'm going to say, he is risen. I'd love for you guys to repeat through those masks, he's risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's do it one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, thank you. They're shooting off fireworks in Greece right now. We've got to, we've got to bring some gusto, guys. Come on. All right. Our scripture reading from today is from Luke 24, 1 through 12. This is found in page 884 in your pew Bible. It's page 884, Luke 24, 1 through 12. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home with you as a gift from us. Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise." And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with with them who, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is good to see each one of you this morning, and we're so glad that you're here on this great day. This is truly uh, the greatest day in the church calendar. It's not, it's not Christmas, uh, though that is necessary, but it is Easter when we celebrate that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so whether this is your very first time at Christ Community, uh, maybe your first time joining us online, whether you have been here uh, in the past, but maybe this is your first Sunday back in the space, over a year now being away, um, or you're here all the time, no matter what your situation is, we are so glad that you are with us today. And uh, as we um, prepare uh, to do this, we want to pray. But also for those of you who are joining us online, we'd love to know that you're here uh, with us in this way. And so um, there's a number that will be on your screen. You can just text that number and let us know you're here, um, how we can pray for you, uh, how we can be a caring family for you as well. Well, let me pray now for us as we prepare to look at this passage in Luke 24. Father in heaven, Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat at a table with two of his disciples, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, to understand that they were about him, every aspect of them. And so we ask humbly now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, he might do the same for us today. Would we have our eyes opened? Would our hearts be quick to believe and to trust in you? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I don't know what your plans are for the rest of Easter Sunday here. Maybe you're gathering with friends. Maybe you've got family in town that you've gotten to see. Now maybe uh, someone's been vaccinated and you're able to travel and see them for the first time. Maybe you're going to do some lunch, maybe outside. I mean, this is a gorgeous day. Maybe lunch inside. Uh, Taylor mentioned, you know, maybe you're going to get a nap in later at some point uh, as well. I, I don't know what the rest of your uh, plans hold for the day, um, but... No matter what it is, I've got some icebreakers for you, uh, for family and friends. Just some little, you know, icebreaker facts, just like random conversation starter things um, that, you know, you can just throw around with people after, after the service. So uh, the first one is this, um, that until the 17th century, that all carrots were purple before they were cultivated and, and refined in different ways and became orange. But so, you know, I mean, that's a, actually, that's a great Easter pot roast thing. It's like, man, this guy really knows his carrots on Easter Sunday on his pot roast. Uh, here's another one. Um, in the 1970s, Chevy actually shipped their Vega model car vertically. So I, I, I was stunned by this, but they hung them upside down in, in uh, train cars like that. I don't know why. It was the 1970s. I guess that's just they were trying some new things. Um, so ship the cars vertically. Uh, here's another one. Between 1860 and 1916, every uh, British army uh, officer was, or, and soldier had to have a mustache, no matter what. So you had to grow mustache if you were in the British army uh, during that late 1800s period. Okay, just two more quick ones. Uh, that McDonald's actually tried, they experimented with offering broccoli that was flavored as bubblegum. This is going to be an ad to the, the Happy Meal. Um, you know, it never made it to market. Somehow they tested it with kids and they didn't like it. I, I, I don't know why, uh, but they didn't go for it, if you can imagine that. And then finally, did you know that armadillo shells actually can deflect bullets? Now, they're not truly bulletproof. You can shoot an armadillo and it will go through its shell. But if you don't hit it just right, it can actually cause the bullet to ricochet. There are two cases in the U.S., um, one in Texas and one in Georgia, where someone shot at an armadillo. Maybe you just shouldn't be doing that anyway. But they shot at an armadillo and the bullet ricocheted and actually hit them. Uh, and they ended up in the hospital. Um, they both survived. But uh, on more than one occasion, people have shot an armadillo and it's not ended well for them. Um, so just be careful on that. So, you know, there are a few facts. They might help you at your next trivia night. Um, but that's all those facts are, right? They, they're, they're trivia. They're all true, um, but they're, they're trivia. And the dictionary defines trivia this way, that trivia is unimportant facts or details that are considered interesting rather than serious or useful. Interesting rather than serious or useful. And again, all those facts I mentioned, I think, fit soundly in that category. They might be a little interesting, uh, but they, they really aren't life-altering. But on the other hand, there are facts that are truly life-changing, that have altered the world. For example, understanding that time is relative, or that the earth actually revolves around the sun, or that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. These kind of realities that when they came to be understood dramatically changed the landscape of the world and how people understood the space in which we live. And I want to suggest today that Christianity is based on a fact like that, a world-changing fact. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with all of this church stuff. Maybe you're someone who pops into church a few times a year. Uh, maybe a friend invited you to come. Maybe you have one of those folks who, you know, mom, dad took you to church from as long as you can remember, and you've been coming ever since. But whether you've been a part of church for a long time or this is brand new to you, 
if you could boil it all down, the singing, the prayers, the songs, the creed, the, the talking, the sermon, all the stuff that happens in a church service, all the stuff that uh, is, is a part of Christianity, it really boils down to this. And that is one fact that changes the world. Peter Berger, an eminent sociologist of the 20th century, put it this way. He described Christianity. This is how Berger described it. He said, a person stands on a box, just like I'm standing in a box right now, and declares, he is risen. And the congregation looks up and responds, he is risen indeed. That is the essence of Christianity. That is the heart of it. Jesus rose from the dead. It is the bedrock, non-negotiable Christian faith claim. No other world religion, as far as I can tell, is so closely and, and, and sort of definitively anchored its existence to a historical fact as Christianity has, that Jesus rose from the dead. And I want to suggest that that fact should move us, that the empty tomb should move us. And I want us to see three ways this morning that the empty tomb moves us, three ways that the tomb moves us and has moved people both in the first century 2,000 years ago with just a few hundred people in Jerusalem and how it continues to move people in the 21st century where Christianity has spread across every continent and there are people in multitudes of cultures and languages celebrating today around the world the good news that Jesus is alive. So if you haven't done so already, I'd invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. If you grab one of those pew Bibles, again, it's on page 884 in those pew Bibles. You can also, if you want, you can pull out your phone. If you just put Luke 24 into Google, you will pull up a site that will give you that Bible verse. Uh, there's lots of them that are out there. Um, but you can follow along. I'd love for you to follow along in these texts that we um, trust and believe are inspired by the Holy Spirit for our benefit and instruction. And in Luke chapter 24, the first thing that we see is the move that the empty tomb moves us from doubt to marvel. The tomb moves us from doubt to marvel. And as this scene opens in Luke chapter 24, we heard it read just a moment ago, but these disciples who happen to be women, they're going to the grave of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, to prepare his body. They had put him there uh, on Good Friday, but the Saturday was the Sabbath. They couldn't do any work, so they just kind of hastily put Jesus' body there. Now these women are returning to really formally prepare his body for burial, and they get to the tomb, and they find that Jesus' body is gone. The tomb is empty. And these women, they run back to the disciples, the 11 called by Jesus and the others who followed him. They say, Jesus is alive. We, the tomb is empty. We heard from the angels that he's risen just as he said. But now look with me at verse 11. It says, but these words seem to them an idle tale. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now there's two things that we need to pay attention to about this move from marveling, or rather from doubting to marveling here. And the first is this, that the people who were very closest to Jesus, his very closest friends, at first they doubted that he had actually risen from the dead. And Jesus had tried to tell them multiple times while he was alive that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to be killed, that he's going to be raised from the dead. And they did not get it. And now even when these women come and they say, it's happened. He actually did rise from the dead. What do they say? These words seem like an idle tale to them. And they did not believe. 
Why is that significant? Because I think sometimes we naively assume, and frankly arrogantly assume, that people in the past were somehow less sophisticated, less smart, much more gullible, that they would just believe anything. It's just simply not the case. People 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, are no more inherently gullible or foolish than we are today. In fact, nobody in the ancient world, whether in the kind of the specific Jewish world of which Jesus was a part of the broader Roman, Greco-Roman cultural world of which uh, Jesus was a part of as well, no one in that moment believed that people rose from the dead. It wasn't like people were wandering around so naive and in a world of sort of uh, fantastical things that they just thought people were rising from the dead all the time. No, people knew dead people stay dead just as well as we know today. And sure, some Jewish people had a sense that maybe at the end of time, when God would come and and kind of make all things new, that there would be a, a resurrection at that point. But even the Jews, people did not expect there to be a resurrection in this moment of time. So here's the question then. How do we get to this place of understanding the empty tomb in light of this reality and a second reality, which we'll see in just a moment. Because Peter goes to check it out and it leads him to marvel. Why does it lead him to marvel? One, and this is the, this is the two things to note here. That the tomb demands an explanation. The reason that Peter moves from this place of doubting now to marveling is that the empty tomb, it demands an explanation, a historical explanation, and it isn't actually that easy to, to wrap up because, as we're going to see in just a moment, not only is the, the tomb empty, which is a pretty well-established historical fact. But then you also have appearances of Jesus where people are saying, I've seen him alive. Now, if you had only one or the other of those, it would be fairly easy to say this is a hoax. If you only had an empty tomb, but you had no one seeing Jesus alive, then you say, well, the tomb is empty because either they went to the wrong tomb or the body was stolen and moved, and that's why it's empty. On the other hand, if you only had people saying, yeah, I saw Jesus alive. He came and talked to me. He had dinner with my family, whatever it is, but you could go back to the garden and find a tomb with a dead, rotting body in it and say, well, no, clearly you didn't because here he is. Here's the body. Those stories of resurrection wouldn't have gotten very far. What's hard to explain, apart from a resurrection, is both credible sources that say the tomb is empty and credible witnesses who say, I've seen him alive. Now, you might say, when you talk about credible witnesses and sources here, but Bill, like, doesn't our primary information about the resurrection come from the Bible? Aren't the people writing about this? Aren't Aren't they biased? Don't they have an interest? Don't they want to believe this is true? Let me just respond to that quickly in in saying two things. Again, first, nobody believed that this would happen. Even if they had wanted it to be true, no one thought it would happen like this. This is an unprecedented kind of thing. And second, uh, it's just important to remember, just because you're close to an event or even deeply emotionally connected and invested in an event doesn't mean that you're automatically not a credible uh, witness or source. 
So think about just, I mean, two, two big events. So think about the, like the sinking of the Titanic. A lot of our knowledge of what was happening on the ship, right? The only way we knew what was happening on the ship is from people who were on the ship as it was sinking, who survived and could tell about it. But we don't say, well, well you can't trust them because they were too close to it, too involved. They're biased in their story. Or you think about the, the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. Just because someone was there and, and experienced what was happening inside those buildings and escaped outside of it. Our primary information to understand about what happened in the building in those moments comes from them, but we don't say they're not reliable because, just because they were close to it or they were involved in it. You can be close to an event and not be a credible witness, but simply the fact of being close to an event doesn't automatically make you incredible. In fact, just the opposite is true. Usually, right, the, the best reporting would say you want to find the eyewitnesses, the people who are actually there, and that's what we have recorded for us in the Gospels. This is just a short summary, but no one has done more to make this case than historian N.T. Wright. And if you want to, if you're saying, huh, I, I always just thought there wasn't a great sort of historical, philosophical framework for understanding the resurrection. If you want to dive into that, I'd highly recommend his book, Surprised by Hope, which is good, and it's, uh, it's, it's readable. And if you want to really go deep, uh, his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is about eight, 900 pages and less, less readable, but uh, um, it is, uh, provides the, the foundation uh, of the best historical work that's been done on this. But while historical investigation can and has moved people from doubt to marvel and fascination, that's just the first step. Because what we see next here in Luke chapter 24 is that the empty tomb also moves us from marvel then on to belief. From doubt to marvel, and then from marvel to belief. And it's in this scene, in Luke 24, we encounter Jesus' followers walking um, in this kind of village that's about seven miles. They're on the road to this place called Emmaus. And two of these followers of Jesus, they're walking along the road, and they're talking about everything that's happened, everything that went down in Jerusalem with Jesus' trial, his arrest, his crucifixion. And they're just now hearing reports about now people are saying he's alive, and, and they're just trying to process. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the road with them walking along, but they don't recognize him. It says, actually, Jesus kept them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're walking along, and this stranger comes up and asks, what are, you know, what are you talking about? And they're kind of like, dude, are you, like, are you, where have you been? Have you been under a rock? Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been happening in Jerusalem this weekend? Like, where have you been? actually kind of reminded me, you know, we're about a year on from the beginning of the pandemic, but there was stories early on of people who were isolated at the beginning of it, you know, because we went very quickly from normal life to those initial lockdown orders. I remember hearing a story of a a group that had set out on kind of this five or six week rafting, hiking trip in the Grand Canyon. They were totally, they had no cell phone coverage, no internet access, no radios. And so they entered into the canyon and life was totally normal. I mean, maybe there was some rumors about a virus in, in, in Wuhan, China, and they come back up out of the virus, out of the canyon, and the virus has completely changed our lives. People are washing their groceries, we're wearing masks, all this stuff. Just that, whoa, moment of what happened. So they're talking to Jesus and like, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened? And they start to tell him everything. J- just about the, the empty tomb, the women, the text we just talked about, but they still, they still don't get it. They are marveling, but they don't yet believe. They're marveling, but they don't yet believe. And so Jesus says this to them, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that's the name for the Messiah, the, the true King of Israel, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that little walking Bible study on the road to Emmaus? He begins to show them the whole Bible for thousands of years has shown that Jesus must die and be raised from the dead, that he is the true king, the risen king. And the disciples by now who have to be wondering, who is this guy? They invite him to stay the night because it wasn't safe to travel at night or even stay at night alone somewhere. And so they say, come on in and stay with us. And they begin to prepare a meal together and they sit down around the table and Jesus takes bread and he breaks it. And it's in that moment of the breaking of the bread, which certainly calls to mind kind of the, the Passover meal and the Last Supper, but even more than that, it's got echoes of this moment of him feeding the 5,000, of him breaking the bread. In that breaking of the bread, at verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then, and he vanished from their sight. And the two, they get up immediately and run back to Jerusalem. And again, they're seven miles away. They're, they're running back to Jerusalem and they tell the disciples, look what just happened to us. They move here from marveling to belief. We've seen it with our own eyes. We ate with him. Transformation. Their eyes were opened. Now notice that phrase, their eyes were opened. It's really key because the move from marveling to belief, don't miss this, the move from marveling to belief is always a gift of grace. It's always a gift of grace. Because they didn't open their own eyes. It's a passive, right? Their eyes were opened. And the question is like, well, who did the opening? And the, the implication is that, that God revealed this to them. It was an act of grace. And it always is. The move from marveling to belief is always a gift of grace. Because all of us are naturally disposed to disbelieve this truth. There's something in us that doesn't want it to be true. We don't have time this morning to fully explore all the reasons why that is, but there's part of us that in our, our hearts are inclined to disbelieve that there is a God, to not want it to be true, not want to be accountable to someone else, to not have that structure in place. And what I've discovered in my, certainly in my own life, and as my years of being a pastor, is that typically the greatest hindrances to people coming to faith is not historical or sort of philosophical problems. Because there are really good resources and arguments and, and thoughtful people who have wrestled for thousands of years with these questions. There are good answers there. But it's not a problem with facts or philosophy. It's a problem not with the heart or with the head, but with the heart. With what we want to be true or don't want to be true. And only grace, only this unmerited favor, only this gift of God can change that about us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, who's a case study in this, because Paul actually talked about who did not want this to be true. He was so, did not want this to be true, 
the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that he was seeking to destroy those who were proclaiming that truth. He was trying to destroy the church, and then he has an encounter that transforms him. And he writes this about his transformation in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He's like, of all the people, I didn't even want this to be true. I was trying to shut it down. But then verse 10, and listen for the language of grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. The move from marveling to belief is always a gift of grace. Pastor Tim Keller is so insightful here, commenting on this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, unless we come to see our spiritual blindness and our need for God's help, we are all like Paul, living good lives primarily for ourselves in order to stay in control of our lives. Did the resurrection happen? Yes. But you only be able to accept it except only if you let it confront not only your reason and your head, but also your self-image and the commitments of your heart. Only grace can move us from marvel to belief. But there is still one more move that must happen to make the empty tomb not just intellectually credible, but also existentially satisfying. And that is the move from belief to joy. The move from belief to joy. Because knowing that the earth orbits the sun and not the other way around, while that, from a scientific standpoint, that's a a revolutionary statement, that is not a statement that will comfort you in your moments of deepest hurt and heartache. It is a a life-changing paradigm shift reality, but it is not a truth. It is a, you know, it's not non-trivial, but it is not a truth that when, when you find out that there's a cancer diagnosis, when you're rushing your child to the ER, when you find out you just lost your job, when you're staring into the reality of a divorce, A squared plus B squared equal C squared cannot meet you and comfort you in those moments. As true as those things are. And I've been a pastor long enough, I've sat in enough hospital bedsides and cemetery gravesides to know that an occupied tomb, a filled grave, has the power to destroy joy and hope like nothing else because of its finality. Friends, only an empty tomb can move us from despair to joy. But how? But how? You can sum it up in one word, and that is worship. Because after Jesus vanished from eating with those followers on the road, he now suddenly appears in the room with his disciples, which is a quick aside, by the way. This is another thing that that makes Jesus' resurrection something that wouldn't have been made up because even the kind of body that he has, it's clearly physical. He's eating. They're able to touch it, all that. But he's also able to seemingly kind of transport himself miraculously from place to place. This is totally unprecedented. No one would have made this up. 
And the people are stunned when he's in the room, understandably. All of a sudden you're there and there's another person and it's Jesus who you last time saw him was hanging on a cross dying and you maybe even helped put him into a grave. They're understandably shocked, scared, freaked out that Jesus is there. And then it says that they disbelieved, but instead of because they thought it was an idle tale, here it says they disbelieved for joy. Here it's not, I don't want to believe this, it's like, can this really be true? Surely not. But then Jesus invites them, touch my hands, see the wounds, look at my feet. And he says, let me have some broiled fish, let's eat together. I am not a phantom, I'm not an apparition, I'm not a spirit, I'm a ghost. It really is me alive. And they disbelieve for joy. They can't possibly believe this seems too good to be true, but they know as they're saying that it is true. They're starting to get it. They finally understand what Jesus has been saying and teaching them for the last three years that this was going to happen. But they didn't get it. And he shows them how it all connects. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then notice, here's that grace again. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then Jesus walks them, takes them out of Jerusalem uh, to the town of Bethany, which is kind of fast forwarding the narrative. And now you get to verse 50. And he said, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, so that language of worship, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Their worship of Jesus led them to great joy. The overflow, this kind of, this existential satisfaction comes when they gave their worship to Jesus, when they gave their total allegiance and adoration to him, they experienced this incredible joy. And that really is, I mean, worship is a very churchy kind of word, of course. But worship at its heart, in that sense, is really about those two things, those two A's of allegiance and adoration. It's about saying, I'm, I'm with this person 100%. I'm totally committed to them, and I am in awe of them. It's not just singing songs on Sunday. It's not less than that, but it is about total allegiance and adoration. And they committed their lives to him, again, not just on Sunday for them, but for all of life, every part of their life, money, time, sexuality, relationships, all of it, and joy fills them. And a joy that sustained them as they went from a harshly persecuted minority of just a few hundred people in Jerusalem to a movement that has lasted now for 2,000 years with over 2 billion people celebrating, Christians celebrating today, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. What the empty tomb offers is not fleeting pleasure or sort of an inane distraction. What the empty tomb offers is unquenchable joy. Joy in being fully 
known and fully loved, which is what our hearts long for, but seems so impossible to get that someone could truly fully know us and fully love us. We think either one or the other is possible. We can be fully known, but not fully loved. We can be fully loved, but, but not fully known. Jesus offers you both. Full forgiveness. The hope that this cross is now not a symbol of death, but a symbol of life. That the grave is no longer has the last word over our lives. The joy that there is always a place for you at Jesus' table. That that thing that we long for, that kind of enigmatic thing of home, and I don't just mean a house to live in, but a home, a place where you feel loved and safe and protected and experienced life is available to you in Jesus. We're actually going to spend the next 10 weeks looking at that kind of joy in the book of Philippians. So I hope you're able to join us for that, to come back for that. We're just going to dive in deep on how do we find resurrection joy in this moment in our lives. But as we conclude this morning, there really only is just one question for us to ask. And that is, are you just fascinated with Jesus? Or are you worshiping him? Are you merely fascinated or are you worshiping? Because it's only when we give that allegiance, that adoration, that true sense of worship to Jesus that we will find the hearts, our heart's joy. The thing that we were designed and the more we learn about neurobiology that our brains were designed to run on joy, the very thing for which we were created only comes in lasting ways we give our total allegiance and adoration to Jesus. When we hold something back from him, it robs us of joy. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, but went on that path of doubt to marvel, to belief, to joy, puts it like this. He says, when we try to keep an area within us, an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he, Jesus, claims all. There is no bargaining with him. So give yourselves to him. Let yourself be moved from doubt to marvel, to belief, to joy. Because, friends, Jesus is alive. He has risen. And not, be clear, not as a ghost, not as a spirit, not in the hearts or the, the feelings of the disciples, but bodily, completely, holy, restored, human, beating heart. And no one puts this better than John Updike, the American writer. He has a beautiful poem called Seven Stanzas at Easter. I'm just going to read part of it for you, but listen to what he writes. He makes this so clear. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of an event, a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of early ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. 
He is risen. Are you worshiping? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you in this moment acknowledging you as the risen king. But also coming and saying, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Would you grant us the grace to open our eyes and our hearts afresh? Maybe we've come into this place today overwhelmed, disillusioned, with church, with Jesus, would afresh you do a work of opening our eyes and our hearts to believe this truth. And perhaps we're here and we realize we've never believed this. We've never wanted to believe this. And yet we find ourselves in this moment being drawn in a way we can't explain. Would we not be slow of heart to believe? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.